In January 2016, I discovered a mystery and decided to make a podcast about it. It's coming out in the autumn and it's called The Family Tree. I can't explain it. I've gone through every possible explanation and none of them are possible explanations. It's important to remember some sympathy, I think, at this point, because the mystery, the strangeness, with that mystery, with that strangeness, we, we might lose sight of the fact that there's human beings involved. Uh, it's very difficult to know where to start. So he had no arm. But the body had two. But the body had, had two. It can't have been the same body. What is your stake in this? What I know how to do is to talk to people that's the only way I can really think of, of, of approaching this mystery. I don't understand why everyone in the family is just being a bit strange about it. If ghosts do exist, I think they wouldn't look how they looked when they, when they died. They'd go back to how they looked in life, so, so Dad's ghost would have an arm. If everyone's running away in one direction, away from an injustice, he would run straight towards it. It doesn't feel right. The image you have of your parents at that age isn't yeah. necessarily the person that that person actually is. If you disappeared and then we found your body and it wasn't you... It says in this, in this Metro story, the family declined to comment on the mystery. I mean, who's the dad or you'd spend so much time with if your dad is a body that can't be the dad that you grew up with? It doesn't make any sense. All of those years, was he dead or alive, they didn't know. Now they know that he was dead... But that's not answered the question. It's another question, right? You're asking a whole bunch of strangers really personal questions. And I know people have agreed, so that's, that's fine. But then recording it, I don't know what your motives are. It's sort of a little bit creepy. The Family Tree Podcast.co.uk. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. Today's episode is another one of those episodes where I take some of my true storytelling that I do live every month at the Hackney Attic and I put some of those stories together in compilation shows. The episode is shorter than normal, but since my episodes are generally so long, I don't really feel like I'm shortchanging anybody. Partly it's short because it's quicker to do shorter episodes, and I'm very busy trying to edit loads and loads and loads of episodes of Getting Better Acquainted so that my August can be entirely free for me to edit The Family Tree, which is a new podcast that is coming out then you can find out more about it at www.thefamilytreepodcast.co.uk and please do go over there and take a look around it's got some really exciting little things to, to hopefully interest you in what's to come i'm really really excited by this show it's probably one of the best things i've ever done while you're over there please do check out the patreon account which has a video which is kind of a teaser as well for the show but it also tells you about what we're doing how we're going to do it and how you can help to support us to do it by signing up as one of our patreons today's episode features true stories that i've told this year between january and july 
In between the stories, you can hear some really lovely music written by Alexander Cameron for the family tree. So this is kind of a preview of some of the amazing music that he's put together for the show. He fulfilled all of the things that we asked of him in pieces of music, and he even gave us things that we didn't even know we wanted. So thank you, Alex, for doing such an amazing job. Even though editing will make you hate the things you love, at least I'm going to be doing that with a wonderful soundtrack. Oh, and a brief content note, these stories aren't too distressing, I don't think, but quite a few of them deal with the ideas of death and bereavement and stuff like that. So be aware of that going into this episode. So when we went to my gran's house uh, when I was growing up, my gran was always the centre of attention. Uh, not in the not in the way of like being like very dramatic and like in, you know being a, a drama queen or anything like that. That wasn't what I mean by centre of attention. I mean all of our attention was focused on her, on getting her approval. Right? Like you know we had to all of the we had to be you know polite at the dinner table and all these things we never did at home when we went to my gran's house. We had to you know have be polite no manners which you know my mum would hastily teach us on in the car on the way to my grands what the manners were going to be and when we were there it was always very intense and like focused on making my gran approve of us all she was the center of my mum's attention and therefore the center of all of our attention my gran she was born into like a working class uh, yorkshire family but she married like an aristocratic doctor and she changed her accent to be posh so she was like the enforcer of poshness within that house he didn't really care he was very quiet and played chess but she you know she just she wanted she changed her accent and all of that sort of stuff so it was a very much a, a kind of posh environment I always remember like potpourri I didn't I still can't pronounce it that was the first time I'd ever seen that shit and I thought like you ate it and it was very embarrassing so so yeah so that's what she was like when she was alive oh another part of what she was like when she was alive is uh, she turned out that she was a racist uh, we didn't really know she was going to be a racist until my niece who is half Jamaican then guess what you really find out how racist your white family are when you have like a a person who's not white in the family so yeah she was racist she didn't want to see my niece uh, when she was born she didn't want to see my niece when she was growing up she had like a conversion moment when she was quite old and she was in hospital and she had some black doctors and she realized black people were human beings but little bit fucking late Um, and so she never saw my niece when she was alive and then she died Obviously, she didn't see my niece after she died, but that's kind of... This is the midpoint of the story. She died. That's what I need to tell you at this point. Um, She died, and we, like... It was awkward, because I I have a complicated relationship with my mum, and so do all of my siblings, but we had to be there for my mum through that hard time, even though she wasn't necessarily there for us during our hard times growing up. Um, And we sort of, like, had to, like, kind of be a focus point. We all came together around my uh, my gran, and again, she was the centre of attention. All of the family were there. The funeral made sense. 
uh, there's rules at funerals. You can kind of work out how to how to behave at funerals. And anyway, she wasn't there, so she didn't care if you were, if we were rude. So that was okay. We got through the funeral, and that was all fine. And then six months later, my mum says to me, um, "So I've got half of your grand's ashes, and I want to bury them in your granddad's family's grave." Uh, which was a weird thing to hear. Uh, so I, I kind of find myself going out to south, like the, the countryside in the south. I don't know what part of the countryside it was. This is just the way my, my memory is about it. But it was a southern part of the country, in the countryside, going to a church to bury half of some ashes from a person whose funeral I'd already been to and sort of said goodbye to already um so I sort of remember like following google maps to this church and walking along and it was spring and it was it was beautiful there was a little tiny little baby uh, rabbits like all along the road so it was like a magical experience going to this church when I got there like it was just me walking around this church waiting for the rest of my family to arrive uh, after a while my, my my sister and my niece arrive um and then my brother and his wife arrive and then finally Finally, my mum arrives. Uh, She goes into the church and gets the vicar, I guess. I don't know what the particular name for that person is. Pastor, vicar, minister of some kind. Uh, And he came out um, and took us to this grave to to, to do this weird little burial ceremony. And basically, they dug up this person's grave, like dug a little hole in the grave. And then then my mum sort of like puts this urn into this hole. And it's not even like, this isn't even my grand's family. This is like my granddad's family it's not even my granddad's not in that grave there's a plaque there for my granddad but that's it um and so yeah we and we sort of my mum sort of like is asked if she wants to say anything and she sort of talks for a bit like she she does that anyway so you know we all kind of listen awkwardly to my mum talking for a bit and then she's like for the uh, earth into the grave and i'm confused you know by this whole thing but like there's this really awkward moment everyone's looking at me and i'm like yeah, sure. I'll, I'll throw the, 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 the mud into the grave. I mean, everybody else did it a bit more impressively, um, but I still feel I did my bit. But yeah, the, the whole experience was so weird because the centre of attention, yet again, is my gran in this grave. And she's not there. And the people who are there for this ceremony are not people she even saw in life. Like, we're all gathered together around this grave to, to sort of say goodbye to someone none of us really knew or cared about. In fact, if, 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 I, if I think anything about my gran, I think, I don't like you. You were racist to people I care about, you know? You, you were a big part of the problem of why my mum was horrible to me. You caused a lot of that grief. And I don't know your context. I know my mum's context. I don't know your context. Very hard me to have any positive relationship to you but here we are it's a sunny day and my niece is dancing around and singing So I was the product of a drunken New Year's Eve. Uh, That's when I was conceived uh, and my parents had already split up. Uh, I was a kind of accident, 
Let's, let's face it, that's the word. Um, and uh, my dad was 58 at the time. Uh, and so all of my sort of childhood, he was an old man. When I was six years old, we were on holiday in Cornwall at a friend of the family's house. And we went to sleep one night and he, he was in the same room as me. Uh, and when I woke up in the morning, he was gone. And I didn't know where he was. And I walked into the next room and he was in bed in uh, the, the host of the house's uh, bed where he wasn't supposed to be sleeping and uh, he didn't look very well. It was explained to me that he'd had a heart attack and that he was going to have to go to hospital very shortly. Uh, that was a minor heart attack and he sort of recovered from that heart attack pretty well but from then on, from the age of six, I thought my dad would die any day now because he was an old man uh, and because he'd had a heart attack. So I prepared myself for the idea of him dying. I kind of thought about that a lot. Now, when he had his minor heart attack, we were living in a small village in North Wales in a house where he lived in half of the house or less than half of the house, but there was a partition in the middle of this cottage. Uh, and on one half of that partition was his part of the house. The other part was my mum and my stepdad's part of the house. And we went to his part of the house for weekends. And so uh, that was my reality. That's what I thought was normal. I found since it's not, not, not everybody goes to the other part of the house for weekends, but that's what, that's what I did. And he was, you know, uh, retired. So he was looking after me. He was bringing me up and, and he was like the main person at home. My mum went out to work. Uh, he looked after the children. And so that was, that was how that went. That house, uh, where the, that partition was eventually ended when my, my mum and my stepdad moved to Coventry. And when we moved to Coventry, my dad went to a different house. He was in a flat, uh, near by in uh, Stoke Aldermore in Coventry which is a pretty rough I guess you could say definitely it felt rough as a child I'm not too keen on the word rough as an adult but it felt rough as a child dangerous area to go into but the thing about his flat was it was like a beacon of light in this dangerous area like I would go to his flat and it was kind of like you could draw on the doors because he's kind of a bit weird like that and he would make great food and it was also a beacon of of sanctuary for me because I was having a really hard time with my mum and my stepdad who were ripping each other to bits as their marriage hastened towards divorce. Um, and so one, of the, one night staying at my dad's flat in Coventry, uh, I woke up in the middle of the night and f- properly realised that when you die, there might not be anything after that. And I ran into my dad's room and I, I told him about this and he was like, well, you know, if, if you die and there is nothing after that, then you won't know. Uh, you won't know that. And you've got what's here. You've got what's here now. I'm here now. I love you. You, you love me. This is real. This is okay. You don't have to worry about that big end of your life, that big parting that happens at the end of your life. But I was comforted by this. But I was also uh, not comforted in that, yes, I didn't have to worry about that end point for a while, probably, if I was lucky. But my dad very well might. Uh, and then we moved again to uh, Cardiff and my dad moved back in with my mum uh, and brought up me and uh, a child who was not his own w- with her in a separate part of the house. He was like a, a lodger this time rather than the partition uh, deal of the past, but still a very peculiar setup. Um, and when we were in Ca- Cardiff, when I was 15 years old, my dad was having heart problems again and 
and he went in uh, to hospital to have a triple heart bypass and so when I was 15 I really thought that was going to be the end that was going to be the parting didn't say goodbye because you don't exactly say goodbye when you're hoping that someone's going to live but part of me said goodbye you know my friends came and they they distracted me while while he was uh, going into the operation but he was fine in fact when they got in there they gave him a quadruple heart bypass just for fun and so at 15 I thought he was going to go and he didn't go when I went to university he was still alive he came to visit me in university and after university I stayed where I was in Lancaster and uh, he came to see us there and then we moved me and my partner to London to be close to him in his old age if you like we we moved to be kind of round the corner from his house and basically what I'm Where I'm getting at with this is I've spent my entire life expecting my dad to die and feeling like that was a big thing to me. But now I'm 34 years old and he is 92 and he is still alive. But now I know that that parting is so close, like his his body is deteriorating, his uh, mind is still there, but not quite as much as it used to be. And I know that that end parting is coming any day soon. But what I'm really glad is that I got to grow up and have him in my life up to this point. And if that parting happens tomorrow, nothing can take that away from me. I had to go on a stag do because you have to go on these kind of things as part of your adult life, it it appears. This particular stag do was uh, kind of even more in some ways obnoxious to me than most stag stag do's are. It was a kind of group of friends uh, who I knew from university, which is great. That's a good thing. I like those people. But what they were deciding to do with their stag do was kind of gather together dressed as Victorian explorers playing risk while drinking gin. And I had a few issues with that, but I'm not too keen on celebrating the empire. Uh, In fact, I hate it. And so it was a kind of complicated feeling I had going to this kind of stag do, but I decided to go dressed as some conceptual idea that undercut the entire concept of the stag do because I thought it was clever. Now, I can't even remember what this costume was. I can just remember that it involved no effort whatsoever and nobody got the joke. So that when I got there, I was already, like he's weird and he doesn't like our weird risk customs and uh, he's the weird one Uh, he's the the prejudiced one not all of us glorifying the empire so that was a kind of a weird start to a stag do but I started sort of drinking the gin which I do approve of uh, and the stag do kind of went on from there and we ended up playing bulls in the park which I guess is a little bit less English focused so that's a little bit more pleasant and then as as we sort of got, got more and more drunk people went well this is a weird stag do let's go and do something stag do-ish. let's arrange to go and sing karaoke in Soho and then get drunk and go to a burlesque show so that's what the stag do suddenly became and so we went off uh, into central London to do a more normal kind of stag do but I'm still not keen on stag do's because they involve groups of men being men and I, I'm uncomfortable with that even though I'm a man uh, so yeah so we went though and as we went I was drunk so I started even though I'm uncomfortable with being a man I started being a man and so I was shouting 
uh, lots and being very jolly. And I was kind of out of my depth. Uh, I'm probably in a state where I might be inclined to be jealous of people. Uh, but I wasn't thinking about that too much. I was too busy trying to sing the karaoke tunes while skipping them repeatedly without knowing what I was doing. And so everybody else was just annoyed with me in a small room and I didn't know what was happening. But someone then took me off to get sober and I got a bit more sober and I started to not be such a dick. And I went into the bar and there I saw Jed, who is a really old friend of mine. He's a very attractive man. He has a very attractive chest. His chest has lots of kind of uh, whatever those things are called that I don't really... Uh, abs, there you go. Uh, had lots of abs uh, and he's had a, he had a, this, the most whitest T-shirt you've ever seen. It was so white. It just like reflected uh, the whole room back at you. And uh, his teeth were also that white because even though he's from Blackpool and he's got no right to American teeth, he has them nevertheless. Uh, and he is like the most attractive. I, I kind of like envy him in loads of ways. I mean, for a start, his politics are authentic because he's actually working class, uh, unlike me. There he was, the man that I kind of wanted to be, that I was jealous of, that I was envious of. So I got my Coke and I poured it down the front of his white, white T-shirt, thinking that he would find it absolutely hilarious. He did not. And there was that moment where he nearly punched me in the face, absolutely, probably justifiably, and he didn't. But instead, he grabbed my glasses and ran out of the room. <laughs> Which actually terrifies me much more than being punched in the face. Because I couldn't see, and I'm in the middle of a like drunk Soho, and I don't know what's happened to my glasses. So I ran out after my glasses and had the most weirdest after effect of Jed spending a long time shouting at me angrily about how much he really admired me and how much I was like Alan Moore, who is my biggest hero. Uh, so he was telling me off whilst comparing me to my biggest hero. So I didn't really get the, uh, the, the treatment I should have received from that. I, in fact, got told I was great. So I was in the Angel Tavern in Cardiff when I was 15 years old, when I started my longest relationship. I just had a joint before I went into that pub, and so I was kind of feeling very high, uh, and a girl called Alice offered me a cigarette, and I said, no, 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 I, I don't smoke. Uh, and she said, it'll bring back the effect of the joint. Uh, so I, I had a cigarette and it did bring back the effect of the joint, but also it introduced me to a kind of different thing, which was smoking, which I am afraid I do love to do. Uh, I, you know, properly enjoy the experience of it. And I recognize that there are high stakes in me choosing to inhale uh, cigarettes. I recognize this because uh, when I was seven years old, uh, my dad had a minor heart attack. And when I was uh, 15 years old, uh, just after I'd started smoking, 
uh, he had uh, a quadruple heart bypass. So part of that was probably to do with smoking. And so I understood the risks. And I had been very anti-smoking until I got into weed. And then I, I was a smoker. And the thing about smoking is it is social. And that was an interesting thing for me because at 15 years old, I wasn't very social in that I had about three years of really, really intensive bullying. Um, and everybody in the school had a nickname for me. And everywhere I went, that was a nickname I heard. And so uh, I was looking for friends. And about the same time as I found friends, I also found cigarettes. And so cigarettes and those friends were kind of intrinsically linked for me. Also, smoking as a, as a person who's being bullied is great because you've suddenly got some, uh, some, some, some ways of stopping people from bullying you because you can offer them cigarettes and then they'll be your friends uh, and they will stop other people from messing with you if they're hard kids. Uh, I recommend that. That works. And so I started smoking. It was great. I have these wonderful memories of sort of being in the back of my mate's van where we had no seatbelts at all, smoking cigarettes with no air in the hut, like just smoke in the, in the air. Uh, and it was horrible and dirty and disgusting. But that is one of the things that I love about smoking. So I, I, I had those years of smoking and those smoking experiences, generally speaking, were always tied up with friendships. Like that's the hardest thing about smoking in terms of quitting because all of your friends are the people you smoked with and when they're smoking, uh, you want to smoke with them and it's a kind of intrinsically linked like that. Smoking was a love affair that I thought I would never quit. Uh, and I got a job, I was working with kids and there was a horrible moment one time where I was doing stories for the under fives and uh, a five-year-old child sort of saw me outside of uh, the place of my place of work smoking and they were like mummy the story man's going to die and then started crying and I don't know if that was one of the things that made me decide uh, to quit smoking, but I kind of didn't like the fact that I was an influence on the next generation in, in, the, in the way that I was smoking. And plus, I got the norovirus, uh, which is a great thing to like give up smoking with. Like, If you get the norovirus, give up smoking. Your body's just going to be getting rid of toxins anyway, so why not get rid of all the toxins? I mean, it was a horrible, horrible two days of, of unpleasant things that I won't go into. But at the end of it... I hadn't smoked for two days and I thought I will carry on and I will not smoke and then I didn't smoke I didn't smoke for a year and a half and that was fine and that was good but then I was back in Cardiff outside a pub with my two oldest friends that I'd known from back then and they went outside and they'd gone outside to smoke and I said I'll go out and stand with you and I won't start smoking but I did and I started smoking again. And so this love affair has yet to end. I want it to at some point. I do. I genuinely do. And yet at the same time, I do also genuinely love smoking. So much that I bought some real cigarettes rather than the rollies I'm financially forced to smoke at the moment. Uh, today, just to remind myself of my true love before I told you this story. So, 
The night that my girlfriend of then 11 years first slept with another person, well, it was coming up to Christmas and my uh, sister and her daughter were there. Like, so my, my little niece and my sister were staying with us uh, and she had arranged to, to see a friend of ours and I knew uh, that they probably would be sleeping together. In fact, uh, I was pretty sure it was going to happen whereas she wasn't convinced it was because she's not got very high self-esteem and she didn't think he would fancy her. So... To rewind a little bit and explain why that uh, discussion had gone on between us was that after 11 years of being monogamous uh, and being in a relationship together, we decided to open up our relationship and to sleep with other people, you know, with full disclosure, telling each other about that, kind of being very ethical about it. And also one of the rules, you know, is if either of us at any point don't like how it's working, we just stop and go back to monogamous, and then go back to being open again if we feel like we should. So we'd opened up our relationship. Uh, So she'd gone off uh, to sleep with this person, or hopefully sleep with this person. And I had said, you're definitely going to sleep with this person, uh, who I'm not going to name, clearly. Uh, And uh, she had said, "Uh, I don't think so. You know, why would he fancy me? All of that stuff, which I had told her was nonsense, because I fancy her, et cetera, et cetera. And that's one of the nice things, actually, when you're in an open relationship, you can kind of get advice from each other about, like, appearance and, like, how you should, like, like, you you know, that's quite useful to have. Uh, I got up the next day. Uh, and we had Lego. Uh, the family had c- collected Lego for years and years and years. And finally, I'd managed to get it to my niece. Uh, and she was going to finally get this Lego. And we had it. And we had the Lego out. And we were playing, me and my niece. I think she was nine at the time. Uh, and we were building these Lego uh, worlds, really, together. Just the two of us. In my, I'm in my pyjamas. She's in her pyjamas. Uh, and I get the text message uh, from my partner, Jen, uh, saying uh, that uh, she had slept uh, with this person and in that moment I felt you know big jealousy Uh, and in that moment I experienced it more than I think I've ever experienced in my life it was like a kind of sheet of jealousy that just like flooded down uh, through my body like it felt like it was in my blood I felt like kind of everything was jealousy like this other person had done this thing that was mine and then of course the word mine reminded me why I have an open relationship and why I don't think that I have a right to, to her body she has a right to do what she likes with her body I have a right to do what I like with my body and that moment just evaporated and I was still there and I was still holding a Lego brick in my hand and I was still looking at my niece who didn't know anything about all of this stuff uh, because she's nine uh, you know and having this moment of like love and joy with her and thinking that in the far away we're well not very far away but in the distance my partner was having a nice time with a friend and that was a good thing as well because one of the things i i liked about her hooking up with him is that i want her to have a good time and he's a good person so i knew she would which i don't think uh, about many people who are out there in the potential world that she might meet so he's the best person to be jealous of and so yeah in that moment I thought everything would end and I discovered that you, you, you know, the world doesn't end when a, a thing happens. The thing just happens and you're still alive and you're still carrying on. And yeah, that's when I kind of realized that I can withstand uh, that level of jealousy and feel happy 
uh, at the other side. It's funny hearing how many bits of your life you get slightly wrong when you're standing on a stage and telling that life to strangers. The factual inconsistencies between these stories and my life are pretty insignificant and don't really change the meaning of stuff. Although, of course, I'm framing these stories to fit different themes every month because it's an open mic that I run. And so I'm sure that you can probably guess what some of the themes were for these stories. In that respect, too, that changes some of the way that I tell the story, some of the way I frame things. When I was facing the idea of death with my dad, it was less about the fact of there being no afterlife, but more about the idea that if I died, I would stop existing, so my memory would stop existing. So it was less about there being nothing afterlife, although it implies that, it includes that in it. It was more about there being no me anymore. No me from before or after. Just me, no knowledge of me, no knowledge of the people I love, no knowledge of anything and all of those things. My dad's comfort was really about how if that does happen, you'll never know it happened. So you'll never know that you existed. So there won't be a you to be sad about that. And I think that did really comfort me, although I am agnostic. And so I can't say 100% for sure there isn't something after now. Sometimes the idea of an afterlife seems pretty terrifying to me. In some ways, I don't necessarily want to continue to be aware forever now. But when I was a kid, it was much more about losing other people, losing my inner knowledge, my inner thoughts, my knowledge and feelings towards other people. And so that was very much bound up with my dad. If you would like to tell true stories on the Spark London stage, come along to the open mics. They're on the second Monday of every month at the Hackney Attic with me hosting or the third Monday of every month upstairs at the Ritzy in Brixton with Charlie Harrison hosting. Or on the last Thursday of every month, we have an encore show at Exmouth Market Theatre and there is generally, although not always, an open mic section of that night too. If you are intimidated by that idea but you would like to do it but you need or you feel like you need some support and some idea of how to go about finding a story in your own life in your own self and how ways that you could tell that then please do come along to the storytelling workshops that Spark is running at the Hackney Attic on the first Saturday of every month so that is basically going to be a really kind of comprehensive pretty intensive but also supportive and inspiring workshop around how to tell your true story and getting you to feel more comfortable in doing that and providing you with some tools and some suggestions of how you can go about doing that i'll be at those workshops also other members of the spark team who are more expert on storytelling than i am so that's happening on the first saturday of every month please do tell people about it who might be interested because it would be great to fill up those workshops and make them a kind of viable source of income for me but also to get more people feeling able to tell their stories because that's one of the biggest obstacles really is that people don't feel like they're entitled to tell their stories and we all are 
we're all entitled to tell our stories. So come along to one of the Spark London workshops and we'll help you to do just that. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Facebook and on Twitter. It's at GBA Podcast. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted. In January 2016, I discovered a mystery and decided to make a podcast about it. It's coming out in September and it's called The Family Tree. The body that's been found now must be a a previous version of him, like a younger version of him from... uh from earlier, from before the car crash. The guy had lost an arm, but apparently he had two arms when I buried him. Whether the body that we buried right now is him or not, he is dead. Maybe there's a sort of a younger version of him from an older time stream that's then somehow been sort of extracted to now and something's gone wrong and now that, that one's died and we, what we've got is two time streams crossing over. That's a, that's a possible one. What is the big question? Like, did the arm grow back or is that a red herring? Were there two bodies? Was there was there two marks? There's loads of reasons why that might not be a body, like you might fall in the tank. If there's lies within your family, wouldn't it be worth finding out what those things are? You might have been, like, killed and buried by someone. I don't 100% know that you're telling the truth. You can't really 100% know anybody is telling the truth. You seem to be. How can you get an arm back? I know you don't mean it like this, but the question's almost offensive. He's got two dads, essentially. And yet... The facts don't match. You know, he was talking about body replacement, he was talking about all sorts of weird stuff coming down. If you were asking me for answers, I don't have answers at this point. Mm. Uh, I have I have ideas. I think it's really easy to romanticise when someone's not around anymore, and I don't want to do that. He wouldn't have disappeared if he hadn't died. There are things that are in some ways beyond our understanding, I think, and are nevertheless true. There is a path that one can find through the information which which allows one to make sense. If you want to find out more about The Family Tree, go to thefamilytreepodcast.co.uk. I wish I had an explanation that made sense. Sure. It would help me, it would help my children. Yeah.